0: Chapter 18 of The Blythedale Romance. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Blythedale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter 18. The Boarding House. The next day, as soon as I thought of looking again towards the opposite house, there sat the dove again on the peak of the same dormer window. It was by no means an early hour, for the preceding evening I had ultimately mustered enterprise enough to visit the theatre, had gone late to bed, and slept beyond all limit in my remoteness from Silas Foster's awakening horn. Dreams had tormented me throughout the night the train of thoughts which for months past had worn a track through my mind, and to escape which was one of my chief objects in leaving Blythedale, kept treading remorselessly to and fro in their old footsteps, while slumber left me impotent to regulate them. It was not till I had quitted my three friends that they first began to encroach upon my dreams. In those of the last night Hollingsworth and Zenobia, standing on either side of my bed, had bent across it to exchange a kiss of passion. Priscilla, beholding this, for she seemed to be peeping in at the chamber window, had melted gradually away and left only the sadness of her expression in my heart. There it still lingered after I awoke one of those unreasonable sadnesses that you know not how to deal with because it involves nothing for common sense to clutch it was a gray and dripping forenoon gloomy enough in town and still gloomier in the haunts to which my recollections persisted in transporting me for in spite of my efforts to think of something else i thought how the gusty rain was drifting over the slopes and valleys of our farm. "'How wet must be the foliage that overshadowed the pulpit rock! "'How cheerless in such a day my hermitage, "'the tree-solitude of my owl-like humours "'in the vine-encircled heart of the tall pine! "'It was a phase of homesickness. "'I had wrenched myself too suddenly out of an accustomed sphere.' There was no choice now but to bear the pang of whatever heart-strings were snapped asunder, and that elusive torment, like the ache of a limb long ago cut off, by which a past mode of life prolongs itself into the succeeding one. I was full of idle and shapeless regrets. The thought impressed itself upon me that I had left duties unperformed— with the power perhaps to act in the place of destiny and divert misfortune from my friends i had resigned them to their fate that cold tendency between instinct and intellect which made me pry with a speculative interest into people's passions and impulses appear to have gone far towards unhumanizing my heart but a man cannot always decide for himself whether his own heart is cold or warm. It now impresses me that if I erred at all in regard to Hollingsworth, Zenobia, and Priscilla, it was through too much sympathy rather than too little. To escape the irksomeness of these meditations I resumed my post at the window. At first sight there was nothing new to be noticed. The general aspect of affairs was the same as yesterday, except that the more decided inclemency of to-day had driven the sparrows to shelter, and kept the cat within doors. Whence, however, she soon emerged, pursued by the cook, and with what looked like the better half of a roast chicken in her mouth. The young man in the dress-coat was invisible, the two children in the story below seemed to be romping about the room under the superintendence of a nursery-maid. The damask curtains of the drawing-room on the first floor were now fully displayed, festooned gracefully from top to bottom of the windows, which extended from the ceiling to the carpet. A narrower window at the left of the drawing-room gave light to what was probably a small boudoir, within which I caught the faintest imaginable glimpse of a girl's figure in airy drapery. Her arm was in regular movement, as if she were busy with her German worsted, or some other such pretty and unprofitable handiwork. While intent upon making out this girlish shape, I became sensible that a figure had appeared at one of the windows of the drawing-room. There was a presentiment in my mind, or perhaps my first glance, imperfect and sidelong as it was, had sufficed to convey subtle information of the truth. At any rate, it was with no positive surprise, but as if I had all along expected the incident, that directing my eyes thitherward I beheld, like a full-length picture in the space between the heavy festoons of the window-curtains, no other than Zenobia. At the same instant, my thoughts made sure of the identity of the figure in the boudoir. It could only be Priscilla." zenobia was attired not in the almost rustic costume which she had heretofore worn but in a fashionable morning dress there was nevertheless one familiar point she had as usual a flower in her hair brilliant and of a rare variety else it had not been zenobia After a brief pause at the window, she turned away, exemplifying in the few steps that removed her out of sight that noble and beautiful motion which characterized her as much as any other personal charm. Not one woman in a thousand could move so admirably as Zenobia. Many women can sit gracefully, some can stand gracefully, and a few perhaps can assume a series of graceful positions but natural movement is the result and expression of the whole being and cannot be well and nobly performed unless responsive to something in the character i often used to think that music light and airy wild and passionate or the full harmony of stately marches in accordance with her varying mood should have attended zenobia's footsteps i waited for her reappearance it was one peculiarity distinguishing zenobia from most of her sex that she needed for her moral well-being and never would forego a large amount of physical exercise at blithedale no inclemency of sky or muddiness of earth had ever impeded her daily walks Here in town she probably preferred to tread the extent of the two drawing-rooms and measure out the miles by spaces of forty feet, rather than bedraggle her skirts over the sloppy pavements. Accordingly, in about the time requisite to pass through the arch of the sliding doors to the front window and to return upon her steps, there she stood again between the festoons of the crimson curtains. But another personage was now added to the scene— Behind Zenobia appeared that face which I had first encountered in the wood path, the man who had passed side by side with her in such mysterious familiarity and estrangement, beneath my vine-curtained hermitage in the tall pine-tree. It was Westervelt, and though he was looking closely over her shoulder, it still seemed to me, as on the former occasion, that Zenobia repelled him, that perchance they mutually repelled each other by some incompatibility of their spheres. This impression, however, might have been altogether the result of fancy and prejudice in me. The distance was so great as to obliterate any play of feature by which I might otherwise have been made a partaker of their counsels. There now needed only Hollingsworth and old Moody to complete the knot of characters whom a real intricacy of events, greatly assisted by my method of insulating them from other relations, had kept so long upon my mental stage as actors in a drama. In itself, perhaps, it was no very remarkable event that they should thus come across me at the moment when I imagined myself free. Zenobia, as I well knew, had retained an establishment in town, and had not unfrequently withdrawn herself from Blythedale during brief intervals, on one of which occasions she had taken Priscilla along with her. Nevertheless, there seemed something fatal in the coincidence that had borne me to this one spot of all others in a great city, and transfixed me there, and compelled me again to waste my already wearied sympathies on affairs which were none of mine, and persons who cared little for me. It irritated my nerves, it affected me with a kind of heart-sickness after the effort which it cost me to fling them off after consummating my escape as i thought from these goblins of flesh and blood and pausing to revive myself with a breath or two of an atmosphere in which they should have no share it was a positive despair to find the same figures arraying themselves before me and presenting their old problem in a shape that made it more insoluble than ever I began to long for a catastrophe, if the noble temper of Hollingsworth's soul were doomed to be utterly corrupted by the too powerful purpose which had grown out of what was noblest in him, if the rich and generous qualities of Zenobia's womanhood might not save her, if Priscilla must perish by her tenderness and faith so simple and so devout, then be it so, let it all come. As for me, I would look on, as it seemed my part to do, understandingly, if my intellect could fathom the meaning and the moral, and at all events reverently and sadly. The curtain fallen, I would pass onward with my poor individual life, which was now attenuated of much of its proper substance, and diffused among many alien interests. Meanwhile Zenobia and her companion had retreated from the window. Then followed an interval during which I directed my eyes towards the figure in the boudoir. Most certainly it was Priscilla, although dressed with a novel and fanciful elegance. The vague perception of it, as viewed so far off, impressed me as if she had suddenly passed out of a chrysalis state and put forth wings. Her hands were not now in motion— She had dropped her work, and sat with her head thrown back, in the same attitude that I had seen several times before, when she seemed to be listening to an imperfectly distinguished sound. Again the two figures in the drawing-room became visible. They were now a little withdrawn from the window, face to face, and, as I could see by Zenobia's emphatic gestures, were discussing some subject in which she, at least, felt a passionate concern.' By and by she broke away and vanished beyond my ken. Westervelt approached the window and leaned his forehead against a pane of glass, displaying the sort of smile on his handsome features which, when I before met him, had let me into the secret of his gold-bordered teeth. Every human being, when given over to the devil, is sure to have the wizard mark upon him in one form or another. I fancied that this smile, with its peculiar revelation, was the devil's signet on the professor. This man, as I had soon reason to know, was endowed with a cat-like circumspection, and though precisely the most unspiritual quality in the world, it was almost as effective as spiritual insight in making him acquainted with whatever it suited him to discover he now proved it considerably to my discomfiture by detecting and recognizing me at my post of observation perhaps i ought to have blushed at being caught in such an evident scrutiny of professor westervelt and his affairs perhaps i did blush be that as it might i retained presence of mind enough not to make my position yet more irksome by the poltroonery of drawing back Westervelt looked into the depths of the drawing-room and beckoned. Immediately afterwards Zenobia appeared at the window with color much heightened, and eyes which, as my conscience whispered me, were shooting bright arrows barbed with scorn across the intervening space, directed full at my sensibilities as a gentleman. If the truth must be told, far as her flight-shot was, those arrows hit the mark." She signified her recognition of me by a gesture with her head and hand, comprising at once a salutation and dismissal. The next moment she administered one of those pitiless rebukes which a woman always has at hand, ready for any offence, and which she so seldom spares on due occasion, by letting down the white linen curtain between the festoons of the Damask Ones it fell like the drop-curtain of a theatre in the interval between the acts. Priscilla had disappeared from the boudoir, but the dove still kept her desolate perch on the peak of the attic window. End of chapter 18